episode four, Orange Peel. I live on a hill overlooking a town and I have for my entire life. My parents once sold citrus here, and so did their parents before them, and while they're long dead, that is a mantle I have taken up and since worn with some pride. They take it very seriously, our work, and I suppose that makes perfect sense because at that time our work was just theirs. At one point in time, my family once did something that no one else in their family had ever done, and they did it without knowing whether or not they would succeed, or if their efforts would even live to see the birth of future generations. They simply did it. They risked for the sake of their great love and passion. They fought and lost for those very same things. And they did what they had to do to succeed in the lives they chose. That is admirable that deserves abundant acclaim. Were life just and those living noble, there would be statues built to honor my family for the hardships they helped our place in the world avoid over the years. There was once a time when no one in the town we've all called home had ever tasted an orange, let alone seen them glowing like a setting sun on top of a hill we'd once claimed as ours. We brought that to them, and year by year, life by life, we continued to bring it to them. My mother told me many years ago that once they peeled their first orange and their teeth sprayed fresh juices down the fronts of their shirts, there was no going back. She said we saw such a love and madness in their eyes that it might as well have been a religious experience, a fanaticism, I believe she said. It was at that moment that our ancestors knew that not only had they found our home, but they'd also found wealth, acceptance, and a home for all those that would follow so long as the tradition of our trees never faltered, failed, or died. It was a simple thing to ask. Generational devotion in exchange for generational success granted to us by the trees is an easy trade to make. As long as we've lived here, no one has thought about failing. No one has even once thought about abandoning our charge except for my grandfather, and even he came around eventually. His wife was a passionate woman, and even though she was the one who'd married into the family, she'd always taken her role seriously. I only met her a handful of times, even though they lived in a small shack behind our equally small home. The trees were as much a family to me as anyone, if not more so, and that was an understanding each one of us arrived at in turn. We did not harvest trees. We accepted gifts from them, and as such they were our sole focus, even if that meant seeing each other as occupants rather than family. We had our bonds, certainly, but it was a bond strengthened by duty and knowing why we were here. We were all one family and we were one with the trees. We never had much land, we truly were sat atop a hill, and I like to think we were more Olympus than Babel. But what we have, we gave to them, 
As such, our house was one living room and a kitchen, and the shack my grandparents lived in was smaller than that, while everything else was devoted to the growth of our towering trees. We've never known exactly why they took in our climate or why, when those in the town down the hill tried to emulate our success and steal our lives away, they were met with dead limbs and financial ruin. Some have said it's due to our perfect position, that we're just high enough and the sun hits always just right and in the end our luck was absolute. Others say that the first of our family, who struck a shovel and chose this spot as our home, accidentally dug a deep hole to the center of the earth where he met the devil. And that devil kept him in the earth for a million years, stripping meat and fat from bone, over and over while leaving our ancestor's decapitated head to eat each raw piece of his own bacon until he became whole again. When the devil had finally grown tired of his torment and the screams that erupted from fat-soaked lips, he asked if he could give the man anything. A gift, perhaps. And when our ancestor asked why, he was told that suffering is far more enjoyable and lovely to watch when it walks hand in hand with the recognition of what had once been. Our forefather heard this and is said to have accepted this deal, if only to lessen the pain of the moment, and for his troubles he was placed back in the moment of time from which he'd been stolen, and given the seed of a tree to plant in the small hole that had once plummeted into the bowels of hell. The implication didn't matter to him, that one day soon it would all begin once again, and with some fresh agony of realizing how far he'd fallen once more. He simply took the door that was provided to him, no matter how short the hall of escape to which it led. I don't believe in anything like that. I am a woman of the world, but that man is long dead, and I hope, if he does now stand as a head above molten flame, forced to devour every organ from his least important to his most treasured, and perhaps it might have been worth it. I can't imagine it would be, but then again that sacrifice meant his trials and sufferings brought us our gifts, and if that's the case, well, then I suppose he might be a saint. It would mean that he's done more for my family than any god ever has or any church that those gods claim to live in. It would also mean that he's more important than every single one of the God-fearing men who buys from us. For while they have given us wealth over the years, we have given them fruits and pleasures they would never have known. One of those good and godly men is said to have come to our home on the hill several generations ago under the guise of acceptance and faith. But when most men tell you such things, it's almost entirely due to a much fuller embrace of deception and lies. He was no different. He came with gifts we could have bought for ourselves and a warm smile when we already had the sun. And in the dark of the night, he attempted to steal away some of our fruit and some branches from our trees. So desperate was he to replicate our success and the comforts of his town. The woman of the house saw what he was doing and cut him down with an axe that sits next to the back door to this day wedging the blade in the small of his back and splitting his spine in two. It is said that he fell and screamed and did his best to crawl along the orange-leaf-scattered ground, but there was no one to hear him, 
and there was nowhere to go. Still, she worried for the trees and anything that might upset them, so she found a rock as large as the man's mouth and rammed it down his throat with the axe handle until he went silent and died. Over the next several months, she and the man she loved built walls around the orchard, walls that were towering and thick. And once the job was done and a fresh new safety secured, they carried the rotting body of the thief outside the walls and hauled him halfway up with a rope where he was left to hang. It wasn't as easy as it sounded. Bodies left that long are difficult to hold together and they left bits of him behind along the way but what fell was forgotten as gifts to the earth so that a liar might help the grass grow. And his body remained on the wall for years, until so little remained that he fell in dead pieces to the ground. But even then he wasn't collected, as our family chose to leave that too as a warning should anyone else think our success was so easy to replicate. I don't know what that man could possibly have hoped to have gained, had he asked, he would have been sold a great number of oranges. Had he asked nicely, he might have been given a branch from a tree. But there have been centuries of whispers about the devil in our ground, so perhaps he thought it was his only way. I suppose he risked everything to chase success and great wealth if he really believed he could steal away what we do, but he should have known it's not that simple. The town below us is a cemetery of dead trees stumps and firewood that are a testament to all that we can do. We are a gift to them, and they treat us as if we are a real world's golden goose. All I know is that if I had been that woman with her axe and her stone, I would never have let that man find his devil's door so quickly. There are no screams out here that will be answered, and I wish only that he had lived long enough to feel true pain and fear. I should be clear at this point that the town below our hill does not like us. They like what we provide, yes, and perhaps they even love it, but as far as I'm aware, they have never felt anything for us other than hatred for what we have brought to a place that once had nothing. We are permitted to walk into the town square, but we are not talked to if we do. Whether or not we can make purchases in a shop is entirely dependent on the people and the place. And so, when we bring our citrus to the city gates, we are more often than not forced to stand outside the perimeter of their so-safe homes and wait to be patronized by those who feel bold enough to step outside their city walls to purchase that which they know they'll never be able to live without. The taste is that divine and life-changing. Strange, though that may sound, you might think I exaggerate, but... There is something special about what our forefather once accomplished. Whether you believe he did it out of simple genius and dedication, or at the behest of a devil who wanted great success to fuel greater pain and loss. Fruit and citrus, when protected and raised by those who care, is something different. They peel differently, their juices run differently, and their taste is simply more. Each one of our trees is a towering behemoth, with branches spreading wide and low, as if they are our guardians awaiting an embrace. And they are, I suppose. 
We are a garden of Eden, except our land and walls and thriving passion will never falter before the eyes of God. We have our trees, but we also have our tree, the tree Eve would have first stolen from at the behest of a beguiling snake. It was what was first planted by the first of our family, back when this was just a hill and his claim was just a tent or a lean-to and it has lived and thrived for the sake and salvation of our family. It is from that tree that all good things come. When I was born, it was not long after the death of my father. My mother raised me with the knowledge that, should she die, there was nothing to stand for the family and our orchard aside from me. Nothing would protect them and help them grow if I did not, and while she never told me how he died, I'd imagine I've always known. When you grow up among the trees and see all bright things hanging low, to be picked and brought before the townspeople, you know that in the end you will give your life to the life you inherited. It's what my mother always called an unavoidable truth, and I can't say that I ever found cause to disagree with her. It's simply how things go, and each day after I was brought into the world, I spent that time picking oranges from the ground as soon as I could walk. Of course that wasn't ideal, far better that my mother would have picked them before they fell, but 100 acres is a great space for anyone, let alone a mother with a child who tried to help but often failed. It wasn't my fault, but when I missed an orange and it was later found on the ground where it had rotted away and spoiled, I understood when my mother took me before the great tree and bled my palm upon its roots. I'm sure I must have cried, it is what any child would do, but she said I didn't. She said that blood makes all things better, whether that be the mistakes we've made or the pain we've caused to the lives for which we are responsible, and that, even as a young girl, I must have understood. I still have the scar on my palm from where my mother's dull knife ripped and tore, and now it stretches bright white from just under my thumb to the tip of my littlest finger. She always said she just got carried away, and I never really blamed her. I'd imagine she was just scared. It's easy to worry about your entire world when that space is so small and everything else so viciously unforgiving. When you live every day, knowing that great evil might be crawling up the hill toward your front door, I can't imagine life is anything but trial and tribulation. But she tried, and she was a good mother. She raised me every day to know the difference between oranges good and bad, and which trees to value and treasure for their seniority. She told me that they would know if you picked someone else over them. She said they understood the land and what walked on it far better than we ever could because they were older and wiser and had chosen to sustain us when they had no reason to. They could have let us die. The first tree could have refused to grow from its seed so haphazardly planted by our first, but they didn't. My mother, just as her mother and all those before, decided that meant something, and I would never disagree. But good things end. They do so all the time, and they somehow manage it in the most mundane of ways. 
so I am left with the remnants of a generational story and the misplaced words that might have otherwise told a happy ending. Although if I'm honest, there might still be one of those. The king tree still grows as a towering beast far above the other occupants of our orchard, and should it ever fall, I have no issue with it crushing me beneath its titanic weight. It would be a fitting end to our story, though I have my doubts that it would go out without so much as a fight. It's a special tree. I'm trying to tell you that even if some of us struggle with one half of the story that comes with my family's name, no one really knows how it has grown so long and spread its roots so deep, year after year, so we're left here embracing the idea that it might be a little more than we might otherwise understand. We know what we've done to give it life, the bodies we've hung over private walls for the sake of its salvation, and I suppose that should matter. When I sit with legs crossed beneath the summer wind, it should matter more than anything that I will remain forever and look up at its nightmarish ways in reverence instead of fear. That should mean something, and I do believe it will. With the death of each and every one of my family, our bond with the orchard has grown stronger and deeper. Far greater is the altar on which we stand and the cathedral we've erected in the name of our king, and truly these things do matter. I'll tell you that much and more. Every one of those who came before saw to it that the living things in the trees must never die, accepting the terms that were laid out before them in blood, and they never have. Because as eternal as all our good things are, we are their constant guardians and there is nothing we wouldn't do to preserve their reign. I don't know when exactly the tradition started. My grandmother mentioned it once. She was firm on the date and how quickly everything changed, but I was still a child when she did, and I've never been able to properly recall the day. She said there was a time when our orchard was thriving, but the townspeople demanded so much more, leading the family to fear the failure of our livelihood. One day, that all changed. She said it happened when one of our grandmothers, long dead, watched her husband fall at the foot of the seventh tree, his heart stopping just right and in such a way that he coughed up blood and vomit that soaked into the soil as if it were fresh rain. Rather than rush to the man's side, she dropped to her hands and knees and watched the ground drink, swearing on her life to the daughter that was still only a child that she saw it travel beneath the dirt to the king tree like a great worm at dawn. I've dreamt of what that moment must have been like, to see ridges of earth roll like tides to the great tree. In those dreams, spent sleeping on the very dirt that first moved, the oranges are possessed of such holy sheen that they dim out even the sun. They shimmer like sunset discs as I see an old man die while his last fluids are swallowed whole by the citrus and the grove, and I understand why that moment buried in time changed so much, and why our ancestor did what she did. She was given a gift in that moment, a hallowed premonition, so to me it always made sense that when she knelt next to her husband and watched his last breath stir the dirt now bone dry, 
She patted him gently on the back before drawing a knife from the belt around her waist and helping him die. As the blade cut through the tendons and muscles of his throat, severing his windpipe and emitting a hissing whistle of final breaths, she smiled up at the tree before settling in to watch the leaves grow greener and the citrus an even deeper orange as rivers of thick blood made their way slowly to the roots of the tree. That night, while her daughter slept, she skinned the man from head to toe and left only the soles of his feet so that he could walk into the next life with ease. The process was grueling and tiresome as she tried and often failed to maintain a steady hand, often letting the knife dip a little too much which in turn caused her weary arms to tug and tear through the muscle and fat that threatened to sully and soil the gift she was so certain she was meant to provide. When she finally finished, she was covered in the blood and filth of her loved one, and she barely had any strength left in her hands to pull from his gut the proper length of intestinal rope. But she did. She did it for the oranges and the trees, for our king tree that was first planted so long ago and had lived and lasted for such an unnatural time. And when she wrapped the skin gently around the trunk and tied it down with the simplest but most slippery of knots, she is said to have heard the tree sigh with such vastness and joy that it sounded like the rush of the wind. That story has been in my family for generations, and while we are not superstitious and do not live in fear of gods or devils, we do sometimes believe in wondrous things. The king tree is one of them. I cannot say whether or not it is a creature of luck and circumstance, or if just like the tale of the first skin of the dead tree there is great truth to the tale of our forefather and the deal he made to stave off eternity so that he might prosper instead. I know only what I know, that we are the family on the hill and we have a tree to protect. No, not just a tree, but something more. It lives for us, and it has brought us great comfort, and all that it has ever asked is for us to wrap it in the embrace it deserves, that of the family that has taken from it for all its life. And it has been done. I was barely a child when my mother cut apart my grandfather on the orchard floor, and a little bit older when she cut away my grandmother on the other side of the kitchen window, and as she did to them, I also did to her. I have heard people say it's what they would have wanted while consoling themselves on behalf of the dead, but they never really know. I do. Ours is a wish passed down through time with the desire to become something more. And while some fight it, while some have reservations when their time comes, all that is ever asked is for them to be brave and face the knife with reverence and the knowledge that the time will soon come to be one with the trees. For with each death, the trees grow larger and our harvest grows greater. With each skin of a loved one draped lovingly both around the trunk and higher still, the oranges take on a brighter sheen while their flesh becomes a deeper red. And with each cut of the knife through the body of anyone alive or dead and the burial of their remnants in shallow dirt around the great tree, we have all felt just a little closer to that which has bound us together for all these years. 
It's beautiful in its own way. I'm sure there isn't a soul alive who wouldn't appreciate it were they given enough time. Today the king tree stands taller than you could possibly imagine, and sometimes I think it must touch the clouds. The skins of my family now cover the first six feet I can reach, and then even more after that, as the dead have risen with its growth, and it is so magnificently strange that the hair is still growing. Some days, when I find myself missing my mother, it comforts me to see the shape of her face pressed and textured by bark and knots while hair tumbles down around her. It's almost as if she is guiding me and watching me, yet another protector to stand guard over our land and the life that I have. And if I'm being honest, I need it. I think I really do. She was always better at speaking to the trees than I have ever proven to be, and there has been a silence in the branches lately, and with the stillness has come fewer oranges, though the trunk is now so very thick with the wrap of the dead, I fear that I have failed. I've tried my best to lure them back, but they've stopped. It seems that we are a journey they are no longer ready to make. I don't rightly know quite when it all changed, though I'm certain it has only been a handful of years. I simply know that one day it did. No longer were there lines leading up to our front door in the mornings, the gentle hum of life filling the air. When I took my cart to the walls of the town in the afternoon with the day's harvest, few if any townspeople came out to meet me. I would stand in the dying light, and crowds that once would have shocked white the hair of kings dwindled until they became almost nothing at all. They still came, but they did so in dwindling numbers that left the trees hungry and waiting rather than full of fruit and beauty, and I was left standing alone where once my life and my family's lives had mattered. You can't possibly imagine what it felt like to sit among the trees and beneath the hair blowing from the base of the king tree, but feel no movement in the earth or see any heaving breaths taken by great beasts of wood now left petrified. I blamed the people, because of course I had to. They couldn't have known how much what we did mattered and cost, but loyalty should have mattered to them. They might have feared us, they might have resented us, but we brought them something they could never replace even though they tried. And they did try. When word of fresh fruit from a different source came running, they chose him over us, over my family, and slowly our influence faded. Men no longer came to my door in the hope of extending my line, and they forgot about me even though I couldn't forget about them. I hated them for their betrayal, you see. They couldn't have known what they were doing, but they were killing my children and I spent every day watching my babies die. I suppose in some way I might be to blame. We're an impartial observer to make great judgments about how things have gone. It's true they might side against me, but everything I've done, I've done for the right reasons. Every additional step I took was taken at the behest of a silent voice that whispered loudly through the leaves and told me to preserve the legacy of my family and the man who'd planted our first seed. It didn't matter why he dug that hole, 
or what he found there, nor did it matter what grew from there to become the first tree. All that matters was what we'd built around what had been given to us by all that we have never really understood. The voice in the trees, the life in the ground. In the end, I did what I had to do, and yet I think I might have been mistaken. The trees are sick, and the king tree is sickest. The hair that once blew in the summer wind, grown from the scalps and skins of my family, now hangs lifeless and is stuck to the trunk not by natural sap, but by heat that rises from the pores of my mother, my father, and all those who came before. And while once the branches had hung low and practically begged for me to pick from them, they have now risen out of reach and I'm left scavenging the orchard floor for something that shines with sunset orange rather than a white and maggoted rot. It has been like that for almost a year now, and there is no telling how desperate a caretaker can become, but then again I suppose I was never truly desperate. I trusted who we've been and what we've served, and I remembered when my mother told me of the stories of those we'd cut down to fuel the fires of growth with furnaces of hot blood in the earth, and I did so with pride. I would never turn my back on that which gave us life. I wasn't raised that way, and I took them one by one because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. It's easy, I suppose, to lure a child. They respond to smiles and voices and the promise of sugar, all those things that I heard about but in which my family never partook. We were not that kind of house. So when the townsfolk began to go elsewhere, when the allure of what we were began to fade and caused the king tree to falter, I sat during a hailstorm night in the middle of the orchard and stared up at that which had sustained us for so long. Dead skin glistened in the lightning flashes while limp wet hair was plastered to the covered trunk, and I stared so long that if it hadn't been for the wet of the rain, I'm certain my eyes would have been left as hollow husks, a leaf left to fall and be crushed to fine powder beneath a boot heel. And I asked our king, and whatever lived in the earth for the sake of its growth and godly stature, what I must do to bring life back to our orchard. I asked if I must marry, and I said that I wouldn't stop at one husband. I would cut my way through any town with the promise of wealth that our healthy forest promised. I would take a child to my bed, a goat, a pig should the great tree wish. But it was silent and its branches rose up in the wind. I asked if it needed more of me, if perhaps I hadn't given enough, but all was silent and the rain ran down my naked arms to pool in puddles around my body as I sat still in mud and grass. So I did what anyone would do in my situation. I pulled my knife from my belt and I cut the skin from my left arm in a single sheet. Not all of it, of course, I had work to do, but from bone of the wrist to bone of the wrist and all the way up to the elbow was cut, pulled and torn slowly away. It wasn't much trouble, as there's nothing difficult about cutting from the arm, and while I'd lost count of the bodies I'd taken slowly apart, at least I was certain that this wasn't my first. 
I don't know if I ever got around to crying out. It wasn't particularly in my nature, so I don't believe so, but though my hand was practiced, there was a time or two when the elements caused the blade to slip a little too soon or late. I wondered if the tree would accept its gift, or if it would hold the imperfect cut against me, and it turns out that he did the latter. With my wounded arm held tight to my breast and side, I did my best to press the bleeding skin sheet to the base of the tree so that it might blend in with my immortal family. But I could only watch in fear and despair as that lone little piece of me slipped and slithered its way to the ground where it dropped into a puddle that gathered at the roots of my tree. I remember thinking it almost looked like a catfish, the way it hovered over the mud of its pitifully small lake. And then I remember crying. I remember begging. I remember asking that which had been there forever how it could forsake and leave me behind when all I'd ever done was care for its betterment and thriving beauty. I brought up memories of having to cut apart my mother two days after we celebrated the day of her birth, but how I did it with resolve and power of will. I asked our tree if it knew what pain it caused to slip the knife beneath the skin of her cheek and have the faith to cut so true that even her eyelids came away intact. It didn't answer me, but when the lightning flashed, I swear I saw my mother's face wink at me. At last, on my knees with my face in the soil now muddled with blood, I begged to know just enough that I might make things right. Just this once, I begged the king tree, and I swore with a conviction I'd yet to fully understand that I would do all that I could and more not to let him down. If it needed life, I would find it. If it needed my body, I would give it. And if the blood and bones of my family were simply no longer enough, I would not let him down. The orchard was everything. It was an immortal presence bound to my family by a sacred promise, and I was not about to be the one to fail. I would not allow myself to die beneath the canopy of our dreams, only to meet all who came before me in the afterlife and tell them how I'd failed. I would rather die, I told our tree. I would rather paper his body and the body of his children with the skin wraps of those outside our walls than ever let him go. And it finally happened. Only then did I finally know, because as the thunder clapped overhead and I bled great fountains of blood, one hand wrapped tightly around exposed muscle and bone, I felt the earth move. I would say it was an earthquake, but it was more subtle than that more quiet, more loving. It was gentle, it was acceptance. And as I prayed in the mud and grime of blood that mixed with rotting oranges that littered the grounds, I felt a root slip from the earth beneath me and wrap me in its grasp. It laid across me like my mother might have, her arm draped across my back in comfort much as she had when I was little more than a child who was terrified that she wouldn't have the stomach to do what had to be done. It was so familiar and weighed of so much love that I wasn't even surprised to look up from my knelt and coward position to see the stretched skin face of my mother smiling down at me. She had grown so tall over the years, 
and while one of her eyes had been torn halfway down her cheek by bark and knots that had pulled so aggressively, there was no mistaking that look. No matter how old I get, I hope that I never forget what it's like to recognize a mother's love. And so, when the morning came and over the coming weeks when I knew that there was only so much of my body I could give, I took what oranges I could into town and lingered on the outskirts with the promise of fresh fruits. I'd never been allowed inside their walls, and I wasn't about to be then, not as I leaned against my cart with one arm wrapped so tight in fish skin that the hand at its end was nearly blue, but I have never been anything if not patient. Even my mother's final words had been in awe of my determination, so I sat and I waited peeling oranges with my belt knife and eating slices stained with my own blood until the children came out from behind their walls because the promise of excitement and adventure outside their mother's line of sight was simply too much to bear. And then I smiled, and then they stared. I suppose at some point someone will come along and tell me that I've done terrible things, but I can't say I'll believe them. Everything that has gone on has done so for the sake of legacy, for family, and for eternal things that rise from the earth. There has never been anything I value more than our trees, and had I been told to cut down my mother before it was her time to die a natural death, I wouldn't have hesitated. Had she been told to do something similar in regard to me, I can't imagine she would have either. We have lived a thousand years as a family, and we've never had any qualms about dying the same way. So I hope they are looking up at me from their place in the earth and feeling pride for what I have tried to do. I hope the tree feels the same as he looks down on me, as a god staring down at an ant, with love and an adoration that I've never understood. I don't see why those who lord above us would ever care about our lives, but the king tree does. All I can do is accept that fact and do all that I can to be worthy of such towering love. I've been skinning living things since I was young, in constant preparation for what was to come, and I remember still to this day what it was like to take apart my mother and the cuts that had to be made. From her base to the bottom of her lip, Sliding the knife with loving care, I pulled her open as if I was removing a coat that she had to wear on a particularly cold and forbidding day. I remember every movement, every flawless slip of the blade, and how good it felt to be as diligent as she'd been with my father. Though dipping into the meat was always frowned upon, we've never scraped away excess fat from the skins with bone tools or stone following instead our instinct that a tree that so loved the presence of flesh would enjoy drinking in the human juice that good fat can provide. It's written in the walls of our home, carved into the wood in rules that all good dead things that are parts of us can only give the tree strength and never weakness. I believe those words, and when I draped my mother across a blank space as high as I could reach and tied her down, it had been with an immense sense of pride that I'd done my job well. Leaning against the king tree in that moment, I'd felt its sigh. It was a deep breath of contentment and pleasure, and it was all I needed to realize that 
I would always do what had to be done. And you might wonder how I could ever do such things to a child, but we are all children in a way. And when I have my knife and set about my work, I no longer see a body. All I see is a gift that is yet to be prepared, something to give warmth to a loved one, something to help warm the earth with blood in the life that follows. That is how it should be, and all my life I will do what needs to be done. So yes, I have taken their children, and I have done so without remorse because the one thing they don't tell you about skinning a child is that it's the same as skinning anything else. I took them from the outskirts, and when there were fewer to find, I took them from their homes, and I did so in desperate numbers great enough that perhaps my reach grew beyond what it should have and I lost sight along the way. Because in time, parents understand where their children are going, even if they don't know how or why, and in time the families fled. One by one, month after month, I watched from my doorway as one family after another set off down the road and never came back, fleeing the shadow cast by my hill where all great oranges grew. And as they left and the town grew still and quiet, my trees did as well. I've never built a family of my own and should I die, I have no one to tie my soul to the king tree where I can live and grow forever. For the last several months there have been no offerings, there have been no skins, and oranges that once gleamed sunset shine are growing as maggoted orbs that writhe about like a child in birth even before they fall. What was once a thriving orchard that hummed with the life of birds as picturesque as any painting is now a lifeless dark. Were someone to come along and tell me that I was no longer on a hill, but instead was living in a cave where no growth can ever occur, I might believe them. Birds were replaced by swarms of flies that lived and grew in blood puddles around the base of the king tree bursting in clouds whenever I stepped outside, and no matter where I walk to on our family grounds, I can't find any bit of life that doesn't seem sick or diseased. The families of deer that once walked welcome through our doors to live on the land now roam as undead things, desiccated and hunched over as if every step is agony, their ribs showing through stretched skin from which more flies are born. And now, when the ground moves, I know that it's no longer the welcoming embrace of the roots, but instead the larvae of insects in the dirt, swallowing my family whole where they were meant to live as tribute to the trees that are now covered in skin and growing hair. In truth, I don't think there's a single tree in my orchard that hasn't been blessed by either my family or those from the town. What's it like to skin a child? It's ordinary. It's painfully ordinary. All you have to do is cover their mouths so they don't scream. But even that wasn't enough, I suppose. Maybe you can only give so much before you are abandoned. I'm certain now that the story might be true. Maybe the first of us really did come to the top of this hill struggling and out of breath, and maybe he dug a hole until he found the devil. 
I don't think I've ever particularly believed it before, but as the days have passed and dark clouds hover while our once fresh and much-loved citrus died, I can't help but walk among our decorated trees and think about how cruel it all is that we have given so much only to watch our vast collections slowly decay into rotting nothingness. My hands trail along their trunks, and the aging puckered skin that feels so much like orange peel while long strands of hair caress me. They don't breathe like the king tree breathes, but I think there might be life there. I think, one day, the time will come when the skin of my family will help new titans rise. And if the story is true, if there is a hole in the earth and the devil is waiting for me along with my family of generations gone by, then it is an end that I welcome. It is an end that I've earned. I know that I will be welcomed into the arms of those so carelessly damned for fulfilling my duties as well as I possibly could. I have killed so many, and with a smile I would kill so many more. All the tree or the devil in the ground must do is ask. Now, as I sit before my king, kneeling in the soil that is three parts mud and one part blood and flies, I find myself closing my eyes as I trail fingers through mounds of maggots so that I might believe them to be ocean waves. And I think back to the first of my family, and the lives he gave away as he dug deep into the ground to make a deal for a most precious fruit. I wonder what I would have done had I been in his shoes. Had it been me who struggled, sweating and starving to the top of a hill to die, only to find a miraculous seed instead. I say that I wonder, but I suppose it's true that I don't, and perhaps I have just told a lie. I would have dug with two hands and the speed of a spade and never looked back. I would have smiled at the great unholy terror and welcomed him with open arms as if he were a lover or a long-lost friend. Give me my gift, I would have said, and in time give me my torment, for I will earn it. But I hear something in the distance, a sound to break my prayerful calm. There's a knocking, a knocking at my door, and as my hands sink deeper into the moving mounds, I find myself smiling for the first time in months because there is a voice that follows, and I know its tones so very well. I've heard it so many times before, that echo of desperation and need. And my eyes snap open when a full weight hits the ground before me, a sound I'd almost given up ever hearing again. The orange is simple, it is perfect, and it is soft and firm and alive. It's whole and complete, and it looks like a sunrise instead of a sunset. I pull my hands from the dirt and thriving life to caress its beauty, its perfect pockmarked skin, and were I ever to be accused of being the emotional sort, perhaps I might have cried. It felt like it had been so long, I thought I might have been forgotten and left alone. But as I lean back and stare in awe at the king tree, at my mother, my father, my grandparents and all those who died before, 
I take a deep breath and haul myself to my feet with the aid of the human rope that ties so many lives in place. And as I briefly lean against the strongest of trees, that which would stand so tall and crush any story of Eden, I can once again feel the breath of its lungs, the beat of its heart, and I smile even wider as I feel every movement beneath my fingers. I find myself turning once in a slow circle, my arms stretched out wide as if I'm dancing, and I see now that all the trees are breathing, all of them are alive, and the hair that grows from the skin of the dead is once again blowing in a breeze, and I wonder, I wonder if this is what it's like to be in love, and to know that you are loved in return. The knocking is persistent. It's desperate. Those outside my walls want so much to be fed. And as I walk away from the king tree, whose roots reach the bowels of the earth, I look back to see oranges growing fast among the leaves, some the color of sunlight, others the color of coal, and I feel the movement beneath my feet once again. It's writhing, following me as I walk as if I'm a trained dog straining at the end of a leash. The voice at my door is wailing that they are hungry, they are starving, that they need food if they are to hope to survive. It says that my oranges are special, and in that they are correct. They don't know how, they don't know why, but they do indeed know. They must. Because our oranges will keep them alive. They will keep them coming back, and I think perhaps they always will. It is, after all, why I am here. It is why I've been allowed to stay. We have only ever fed the hungry. And I suppose my trees are hungry too.